0: Hello, and welcome to this week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval, and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. Week in, week out, we will help prepare activists in Canada and internationally for the coming revolutionary events by analyzing all of the developments in Canada. We hope that you can join us every week. With that being said, let's get into it. This week, on This Week in the Canadian Revolution, we have Jorge Martin from the uh, International Marxist Tendency. Uh, who will talk to us about Ukraine? Um, so yeah, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, the West is creating a war fever. There's a lot of hypocrisy about the way that this war is approached compared with wars that the United States, for example, engages and NATO engages in. And I guess I'd like to start off by maybe uh, you could just <laughs> explain to us like what what position should Marxists take? in this war.
1: Yeah, you, you are, in fact, right. I mean, there is there is an enormous amount of propaganda and, and warmongering uh, in the West. I, I live in uh, London, and here uh, the newspapers and the news bulletins are full of it. Uh, last night, the BBC News at 10, uh, which normally only runs for about 30 minutes, uh, was a 40-minute report on the war in Ukraine, uh, nonstop. The only thing that uh, seemed to have happened in in Britain, on that day, was was the weather that was tagged or tagged along at, at the end, and so yeah, I mean, the first um, the first thing that we need to do is to cut across this fog of propaganda and lies and try to understand the real reasons for this conflict, and on that basis, we can take a we can take a position. But just just to clarify this from the start, we uh, the international Marxist tendency is opposed to uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We think that this is a is a reactionary war, and uh, it's also an imperialist uh, war. But that doesn't that doesn't exhaust the, the the matter. The reasons why we oppose this war are completely different to the reasons, the hypocritical reasons why the Western governments and uh, Washington is against this war. And uh, we take a class position, and uh, we understand that this war, this conflict. Um, which is being fought on on uh, the terrain of Ukraine is is uh, at bottom a conflict between U.S. imperialism and, and Russian imperialism. So yeah, we should try to uh, unpack these these ideas. But this is our basic position. We think that this is a reactionary war. We condemn above all the hypocrisy of uh, of the West because they say they say things like. Uh, this this uh, Russia has violated the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine, or, or Russia has uh, violated the principle of the national sovereignty of Ukraine. But I mean, the people who are saying this are the same people who for decades, for centuries, have carried out imperialist wars everywhere. And you don't have to go that far back. I mean, uh, in 1999, NATO, which now claims to be a defensive alliance, which is not a, a threat to anyone. NATO carried out a campaign of bombing of Serbia uh, for 78 days aerial bombardment, which uh, killed uh, hundreds of innocent uh, civilians. They they have no right to speak of sovereignty or, or integral t- territorial integrity of any country. The other day I was I was watching the the, the news and uh, Condoleezza Rice, who was. One of the people spearheading the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was asked on Fox News, so when a country invades another country, another sovereign country, that's a war crime. And Condoleezza Rice was nodding along. when This is exactly what she did in 2003. I mean, the hypocrisy is completely... Uh, it's completely scandalous. And I think that this is the first thing that we need to do. We, we, we live uh, in, in Western imperialist countries, in, in the UK, in Canada, in the United States. And we are subjected to this barrage of propaganda. Now they, they close down RT, Russia Today, and Sputnik in, in the European Union. You can't watch this channel, these Russian uh, state channels anymore. But all that means is that you don't have access to Russian propaganda. The only propaganda you have access to is, is the propaganda of your own government, which is, which is equally equally bad. and it defends exactly the same interests. Russia today defends the interests or expresses the point of view of the ruling class in, in Russia. The BBC expresses the interests of the, of the ruling class the ruling class in, in Britain, which so is basically the same thing.
0: Yeah, we've seen exactly the same thing in Canada. Uh, complete hypocritical warmongering uh against russia uh on and and of course <laughs> we're no friends of rush of russian imperialism uh they're they're predatory they have their own imperial aims but but coming from uh, a country that i mean in canada in particular has systematically violated the indigenous lands <laughs> Uh, it's just uh, 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 voted for and participated and supported the bombing of Libya, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, it's just, it just reeks of hypocrisy. It's like, why are you saying that? <laughs> you're the last, you're the last government, the last people that should be talking about, yeah, Ukrainian sovereignty and, and whatnot. Um, before we get into more into the hypocrisy because I think there's a hell of a lot to talk about in terms of like hip- Western hip- imperialist hypocrisy. Um, I think you know some people on the left uh, will will get sucked into well, especially in Canada, it's been a very much like a pro-Ukrainian thing or or whatnot, and basically siding with the government. Uh, but then you you do also get people that some people that get sucked into the well Russia. Russia's justified, you know, uh, sort of tends to be a bit more of a Stalinist position. But, you know, you never know. You get some honest left wing people that just hate Western imperialism so much. They go to the other side. And and then I find that sometimes our position gets characterized, oh, but you're just taking a neutral position. Or you you," like, what would you say to something like that?
1: No, we, we're certainly not uh, neutral, but the, the difference is that we take a class point of view, I, I what's in the interest of the working class, the working class in Ukraine, the working class in Russia, the working class in, in the West. Our position is not neutral. We are against uh, Russian imperialism and and, and its intervention in, in the Ukraine, and we are against Western imperialism. That's not a neutral position, that's a position against both uh, sides on this. World. And of course, we, we feel for the Ukrainian people working people, youth uh, women children in, in Ukraine who are suffering from this uh, from this uh, war and uh, make, no, make no mistake there is no such thing as a humanitarian uh, war or as Putin wants to put it, a military intervention, military operation that uh, just deals with military targets. no I mean uh, we, we've seen that we know this because because the West has just done it in Afghanistan in, uh, in uh, Iraq, in Serbia, in, in Somalia, in Syria, in Libya, everywhere. Whenever there's an imperialist war, it's uh, working people who pay the price and who, whose hospitals are destroyed, whose schools are uh, uh, reduced to, to That is That is completely true. So, in fact, our comrades, the comrades of the international Marxist tendency in Russia, have uh, taken a very clear position, a very clear stance from the very beginning of this, from day one of this war and from before when when the war was being prepared, they are against Putin. They are against Putin's uh, imperialist ambitions, which have nothing, there's nothing progressive in, in that. The idea that Putin, who claims the legacy of the Tsarist empire, who criticized Ukraine, or rather he said that Ukraine was the creation of Lenin and the Bolsheviks can carry out any progressive role in uh, Ukraine is completely, completely ridiculous. In fact, he, this intervention will have the opposite effect. will push more and more Ukrainian uh, people into the hands of the Ukrainian far-right nationalists and will make them support NATO and the European Union even more than, than, uh, than before. And at home in Russia, this will also have reactionary consequences, the cur- curtailing of uh, democratic rights, hundreds or if not thousands of people have been arrested in anti-war demonstrations. Media outlets have been closed down and so on. So that's, that's quite clear. This is our position. But over here in the West, our main duty as Marxists, as, uh, as working class activists, as, as Democrats, as consistent Democrats, is to oppose our own uh, imperialism. Uh, that is also largely responsible for this, for this uh, war. I mean, you, you don't have to uh, agree with Putin, but it is a fact that uh, for the last 30 years, NATO has been pushing eastwards. Uh, it's, it's an imperialist aim of the United States to dominate the whole of Europe, and in this case, Eastern Europe. And obviously, Russia, or rather the ruling class in Russia, the, the Russian imperialists who, who are represented by Putin in, uh, in government, Uh, Their interests are at loggerheads with this. And they have been warning for a long time, do not uh, move, expand NATO further east or or there will be consequences. So the United States was fully aware that this was going to lead to a conflict. Not only this, I think they're being completely cynical because they, from the beginning, said, we're not going to send troops to Ukraine. Uh, And so therefore they gave basically green light to Putin to intervene. They now saying we're not going to implement a no-fly zone. So basically, they want um, a battle with Russia uh, to the last drop of someone else's blood, I, I, the blood of the Ukrainian uh, people who are, who are being used as as uh, um, as cannon fodder for this for this conflict. So we don't. Our position is not neutral. We are against this war. Uh, we are against imperialism. It's just that we, we're not just against. The other side's imperialism, we are first and foremost against the, against our own imperialism. Uh, this has always been the internationalist position, going back to uh, Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, Trotsky in the First World War, what was their position? The main enemy of the working class is at home. The main enemy of the working class is our own uh, ruling class. And, and our own ruling class here in the West is, is uh, responsible for this war uh, uh, as well. Uh, Even if you take it from this point of view, Russia is a middle-sized imperialist power, but the most powerful and therefore reactionary imperialist power on earth is the United States. Uh, They are are more responsible for for this. Just imagine uh, for a moment that that Putin was to enter into an alliance with Canada and uh, Mexico and Cuba, and then he was, uh, was going to deploy uh, troops and missiles in these three countries, I, I don't think uh, the United States will take, will, will take it uh, lying down. They will, they will react to this. So, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. In fact, Putin is like a mirror image of Western imperialism. When he says he goes into Ukraine to defend the rights of the Russian-speaking people in the Donbas, he's just making an excuse. But this is exactly the same thing that the imperialists do. They they went into Iraq in order to defend the the rights of the poor Iraqi people. Rubbish, uh, all lies. They went into the bombing of Serbia in order to defend the poor Kosovar Albanians. The the imperialists, they don't care about the fate of of the oppressed peoples. In fact, they are the main oppressors of of small nationalities. They just use these excuses as a small change. In order to give a um, so-called humanitarian cover for, for the military imperialist uh, intervention, so no, certainly, our position is not neutral on on this war. Our position is against is against uh, Russian imperialism, but also against Western uh, imperialism. This this is the this is, I would say, the the, the difference. We don't side with either side because the bo- both sides are reactionary.
0: Uh, Yeah, precisely. And in in order to to have an internationalist position, you have to be building an international, (laughs) which is precisely what we're doing at the IMT, at the International Marxist Tendency. Uh, So yeah, anyone listening, get involved. You got to get involved in the fight uh, to build an international uh, Marxist tendency to fight uh, capitalism. Um, What you were just talking about, (laughs) I think transitions nicely into a point that is very important the justification for this war uh from the russian side is to protect the russian-speaking population of the donbass right uh and that they use the same justification more or less uh there was the same justifications being used when they annexed crimea uh now from the west the rest as you've correctly <laughs> explained has been hypocritically talking about ukrainian sovereignty and somehow protecting ukrainian yeah the ukrainian people and whatnot but this all kind of relates back to and it has been used systematically throughout history of the the sort of the, the national question right the right of nations to self-determination autonomy sovereignty uh i was wondering if you know you had any more words to say about that like it's a it's a it's a difficult, it can be a difficult question. It's a, it's a confusing question to many people. Uh, what is the Marxist approach to this in this situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are two, two different questions here. One is the general position of Marxism towards the national question. And then how this applies to this, to this particular conflict, not, not only to Ukraine, as you said, but also to Crimea, to the, to the People's Republics in the East, and, and so on. First of all, The general position of Marxism towards the national question is that this is a democratic question. Uh, The national question, the the creation of nation states was one of the tasks of of the bourgeois when at the time of the bourgeois revolution, the unification of France, the unification of uh, Germany, the creation of uh, nation states, which means uh, a centralized government, uh, a unified system of tariffs and trade and so on, the creation of a national market, this is a task that the ruling class, the bourgeois, should have uh, resolved two, three hundred years uh, ago. But in many places, it did not, or it did resolve this question in a reactionary uh, way. So there are there are leftovers from from this, of course. Say the national question in Scotland, the national question in Catalonia, uh, the national question in in Belgium, which is very complicated. But um, this is so so therefore the position of the Marxist is that we are for the for the right of self-determination of the peoples, which means that any oppressed people should have the democratic right to decide whether they want what what they want to do with, with the with the future, whether they want to be part of a bigger state, multinational, multinational state, or whether they want to have their own state and so on. The problem is that in the epoch of imperialism, which started more or less hundred years ago or, or a bit more it is very difficult, almost impossible for any small nations to become uh, actually independent, because the world is already divided by, by between big imperialist uh, powers, and usually the small nations are used by the big powers in order to justify the imperialist uh, aims. The First World War was a clear case of this, it was fought on the basis of the so-called defense of the rights of, of small nations, small nations in the Balkans, small, small Belgium, and uh, and so on. But these are just justifications. The other part of this question is that uh, the Marxists stand for the maximum unity of the working class across uh, language divide, across national divides, and so on. Our movement is international movement. and Socialism can only be international. So therefore, also for us, the defense of the democratic rights of small nations is, is a way of guaranteeing the unity of the working class. We have no interest, the workers of the oppressor nation have no interest in the oppression of the, of the workers in the oppressed nation. Uh, on the contrary, uh, they have to be the, the, the staunchest defenders of democracy if they want to guarantee class unity. And, and uh, in order to understand this, I think Ukraine is a very good uh, example of this. Ukraine was part of the Russian uh, Empire, the Tsarist Empire, and the policy of the Bolsheviks, the policy of the Social Democratic Party, as as it was known at that time, was one one of defending the right of self-determination of the nationalities, which there were many in the Russian Empire. In fact, great Russians, the the main dominant nationality, represented only 40% of the population of the whole uh, empire. And there were many nations with national aspirations. Uh, the Poles, the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, uh, all, all the nationalities in the Caucasus, the nationalities in Central Asia. They were all oppressed. And in order to guarantee the unity of the workers in the common struggle against the Tsarist Empire and for socialism, the, the, the Social Democratic Party, the Bolshevik Party, had a program, a clear program of the right of self-determination. And this, this went on uh, up until the taking of power. When the Bolsheviks took power in 1917, one of the first decrees was the decree of the freedom of the nations. All nations were given uh, the right, if they so wish, to separate from, uh, from what did in this case was a, was a state in which the workers had taken uh, power. In the case of the Ukraine, there was a long struggle because there was uh, intervention of, uh, of reactionary nationalists. The white reactionary armies were also very active in Ukraine. And, and so on. And in fact, when Putin says that uh, Ukraine as it is today was a creation of Lenin and the communists, it's not completely right that the Ukrainian national identity traces its roots uh, further back. But it's true that the only time at which there was an independent, genuinely independent Ukraine was, it was Soviet Ukraine uh, in the period between 1918 and 1922. Uh, and then, In 1922, the the Soviet Union was created. The Soviet Union was was not just one country, it was a confederation of Soviet republics. The Russians, Belarusians, the Transcaucasian Federation and the Ukrainian Soviet Ukraine uh, united on equal footing. And there was a clause in the constitution that said that any of these countries could leave the Union at any time so so they wished. This was the only way of of uniting uh, Ukraine. The, the national question in Ukraine is very complicated. There were, there were Russian-speaking workers, Ukrainian-speaking peasants. Um, there, were, there were big populations of Jews, of Poles, and many other nationalities in, in the Caucasian mountains, uh, and so on, the, the Crimean Tartars, and, and so on. Unfortunately, this this very careful policy on the national question was completely reversed by Stalin. Stalin uh, reverted back to greater Russian nationalism. And and Lenin explained this. Lenin actually clashed with uh, Stalin in 1922 over the question of the the creation of the Soviet Union. Stalin wanted Ukraine to join the Russian Federation, while Lenin said, no, this should be a union on equal footing of the two Soviet republics. and Stalin carried out a, a monstrous policy on the national question of, of oppression of the nationalities, including the Ukrainians, but also the mass deportation of the Crimean Tatars to Central Asia and, and so on. And this poisoned the, the, the situation in, in uh, Ukraine. And this could be seen in the Second World War and, and after that. Now. What is the concrete application of the question of of national self-determination today in in Ukraine? Because this conflict didn't start now, didn't start on the 24th of uh, February with the Russian invasion. You you could trace it back to the collapse of Stalinism in 1991, but also to 2014. And and this needs to be explained because unless you understand what happened at that time, you can't understand what's what's happening now. In 2014, there was a a movement called the Euromaidan, which started as a, as a confused movement, mainly of middle-class uh, people, petty bourgeois people, and so on, with, with mass support against corruption and so on, against the government, government of Yanukovych, who had originally wanted to sign a treaty with the European Union um, and a partnership agreement, but then backtracked. And then the whole movement was about this question. We want to be part of Europe against corruption and so on. But then. The, the, the far right got a dominant hand in this uh, movement. They were armed, they were very well organized. And when I'm talking about the far right in Ukraine, I'm talking about people who are, who are nostalgic for the Second World War, Nazi collaborators, the Ukrainian nationalists in, in the Second World War collaborated with the Nazis. They, they even set up the SS Galicia division, a division of the SS troops made up of uh, Ukrainian nationalists in order to fight the, the Soviets. And uh, these people got an upper hand in this. Plus there was also clear interference by the United States. Uh, so it's, no, it's no secret, they, they, they were there. Uh, what's his name? McCain was speaking at the Euromaidan at the Square, uh, which is an interference in the, in the national sovereignty of Ukraine, if you, if you ask me, but, but that, that didn't seem to matter at that time. Yanukovych was overthrown by this movement and a new government came to power. Well, several governments there were several presidents prime ministers and so on but all based on on this idea of national of the Ukrainian national identity based on the on, on the reclaiming the figures who had fought alongside the Nazis in the Second world War Stefan Bandera Yusenovich, and uh, the, the Ukrainian uh, insurgent army and so on and these people had carried out war crimes the massacre of the Jews and, and everything. Uh, Obviously, many people were not happy in Ukraine about this. And this sentiment was stronger in the south and in the east. There were big protests, big demonstrations in Odessa, in Kharkiv, in in many towns and cities. Uh, And and in the far east of the country, in Donetsk and Luhansk, there was an uprising, an armed uprising. And people said, we we don't want to be part of this Ukraine. We don't want to be part of this reclaiming of these so-called traditions. Right? And also, they feared that their status as uh, Russian-speaking uh, population will be under under threat and the government that was based on this brand of nationalism. A government that is not, not a fascist government, because there's supposed to be elections and so on, but it's a government that's, uh, that has banned the Communist Party. There's a law that bans the communist uh, symbols. Left-wing organizations have been forced underground. And it's a government that has incorporated a fascist paramilitary gangs into the National Guard. So they are now armed uh, by the state, funded by the state, armed by the West. Uh, US, UK, Canadian weapons and training goes to this, the Azov Battalion, the Idar Battalion. These people are neo, neo-Nazis. Uh, in the West, many people say, oh, this is fascist, this is fascist, uh, Trump is a fascist. No, we're not talking here about far-right, um, Uh, uh, politicians or or demagogue populists. We're talking here about open fascists, you know, people who who wear the symbols of of Nazi Germany and on their insignia and and so on. So it's not not just a a normal democratic uh, regime that there is in in Ukraine. And then the government, in response to this uprising in the East, they started what they call the anti-terrorist operation a one-sided civil war against their own people. And this is the origins of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, republics, Um, which at the beginning contained many different uh, elements, some more confused, some more pro-Russian nationalists, including some uh, far-right Russian empire nostalgics, and so on, but also some communist organizations, working class, the miners. Uh, people who are nostalgics for the for the war against uh, Nazi Germany and so on. now this is no longer the case when Russia intervened in the in the two republics they basically replaced the leadership for another one that was more compliant and these republics are not really independent they are completely dependent on Russia for economic military help and so on. But anyway this is the story that's behind this conflict uh, now. And, and this plays a big role in this whole uh, in this whole question. When Putin says there's a, there's a Nazi government in Kiev, that's not true, but th- that there is a government that has Nazis, open Nazis in the National Guard, armed uh, with modern uh, weapons, fighting the war in the uh, Donbass, this is completely clear. Now we hear a lot about Mariupol, Mariupol this uh, this uh, sea, uh, port in in the Azov Sea, which is being surrounded by Russian and Donetsk Republic forces, and it's uh, been encircled completely and is now being bombarded. This is the site of the Azov Battalion, the Azov Regiment, as it's known now. Um, thousands of uh, hardened uh, Nazis who prepare to to fight, no, not for democracy. <laughs> but for, for, for the Ukrainian fatherland, as they see it, that, that is a pretty reactionary uh, uh, development. So what do we think about the, the, the right of self-determination? Yes, Ukraine has the right of self-determination, but the right of self-determination cannot be guaranteed neither by Russia, of course, which just invaded the country, but also not by uh, NATO and the West. How can you, how can you describe Ukraine as a sovereign country, when its economic policies are completely dictated by the IMF, when its uh, government is decided by the US embassy and uh, its army is armed uh, and, and uh, trained by by the West, this is not an independent country, this is a satellite of US uh, imperialism. And then for the right of self-determination of, of Crimea, well, it's true that the referendum that took place in Crimea took place under, under Russian occupation you can't really have a, a democratic referendum when there's a foreign army in in the in the country but uh, I'll tell you what most likely if there was a genuine democratic referendum even without the presence of Russian troops the big major the overwhelming majority of the population in Crimea as has been shown in opinion polls before 80% perhaps will have voted for their incorporation to the Russian Federation after all they were only they were only attached to Ukraine in 1950, what was it, 1954 or 1956, as a as a personal gift of Khrushchev to Ukraine, which is completely mad. Uh, but the reason the reason why uh, Putin is using the question of Crimea, is interested in Crimea, is not because the, the majority of the population there speak Russian. No, it's because that's the that's the seat of of the of the Black Sea Russian Navy fleet. That's what uh, is interesting for Putin. And when Putin talks about the, the, the right of self-determination for the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, we are in favor of that. They should be the, uh, able to decide democratically whether they want to be part of Ukraine or, or not. And I will say, if you, if you, if you are a, a Ukrainian nationalist, someone who thinks that Ukraine should be united, The best way to go about it is not to launch a war against uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, bomb your own uh, people, but rather uh, try to accommodate them, uh, try to respect uh, the national and democratic rights and language uh, rights. So, yeah, the referendums that took place in in Donetsk and Luhansk also took place under very particular conditions, conditions of civil war and so on. And I'm not totally sure they can be taken as as the will of the people, but that there is a very strong feeling in both uh, provinces, both oblasts, um, towards, towards what? Towards having their rights respected. And, and they don't necessarily, maybe at the beginning, they didn't want to join the Russian Federation. Uh, many of them would have been happy to be part of Ukraine, but not part of a Ukraine that's run by a government that uh, claims Bandera, Stephen Bandera, the the Second World War Nazi collaborator is a a national hero. That's not the Ukraine they want to be part part of. Um, And in fact, if you think about it, that the Ukrainian and Russian people have very strong bonds of uh, friendship and brotherhood that go back many years. Uh, They fought together uh, in the Second World War against the Nazis. They fought together against the whites and the reactionary armies in the civil war in the, 19, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21. And um, there are strong bonds of unity. Um, when, when Putin says this, this is the same people, uh, he's not completely wrong. He's using this national sentiment for, for cynical reasons, but there are very strong bonds. And these bonds are being broken. And the, the, the consequence of this war will be to push the Russian people towards greater Russian chauvinism, which is reactionary ideology, and to push the Ukrainian people towards reactionary Ukrainian nationalism based on these so-called freedom fighters, uh, which in fact were fighting for Nazi for Nazi Germany. So, what's the solution to all this? To us, to the solution is is working class unity. Uh, the workers of Russia have nothing, have no quarrel with the workers of Ukraine. The workers of Ukraine have no quarrel with the workers of the of the Donbas. This this uh, hatreds are being fostered and, and developed by the by the respective ruling classes in order to stay to stay in power but of course the unity of the working class can only be guaranteed if it's clear that the rights of any national minority linguistic rights cultural rights uh and and so on are respected and, and, and the moment they are not respected the whole thing breaks down the moment that uh, soviet russia is seen as, as a greater russian chauvinism that oppresses the ukrainians then there's no uh, brotherhood the moment uh, ukraine is seen as, as a power as i said that uh, claims the legacy of uh, second world war collaborators nazi collaborators then uh, the people of the donbas are not going to be very happy about this and quite rightly so so, yeah, the, the, the national question is very complicated and it can only be solved on the basis of uh, strict democracy, the respect of the rights of, uh, of uh, all national groups. Uh, and this is also the basis for class unity, for the unity of the, of the working class, which for us is uh, sacred and comes before anything else.
0: Yeah, well, as we quite often say, then the national question—you got to be careful because it can be a minefield. <laughs> Precisely because in the era of imperialism, very, different imperialist powers use uh, the aspirations of national of different national groups like small change. They don't care. Russia doesn't care about people in Crimea or Donbass, uh, and you be damn sure that that uh, Western imperialism doesn't care about Ukrainians. <laughs> this is this is all just small change in their fight uh, over Ukraine, which is a significant market in the world. Um, so yeah, it all comes back to uh, economics at the end of the day, and it is an imperialist conflict. But I think, yeah, thank you very much. You helped explain the Marxist approach on, on what is a very complex, sometimes difficult question to understand. Uh, before we get into the next point, I wanted to get into hypocrisy because I think... <laughs> This is the main thing, I think, for Marxists in the West that we need to focus on, the hypocrisy. Before, I just want to take a very short commercial break. If you're listening to this podcast, um, I I, I want to encourage you to, you know, where are you getting your news? Where are you getting your information? You are probably getting your information from very bad sources. The capitalists control the media. They control the narrative. They control the news. Uh, and therefore, we believe strongly that working class people need their own media. We need our own news. We need our own revolutionary perspective that puts forward our class interests. And with that in mind, Fight Back, we produce a publication that comes out now fortnightly every two weeks. And I encourage you to subscribe. We are expanding our subscriber base. You can get a subscription to Fight Back magazine, which will, you will get a Marxist analysis delivered to your door every two weeks. Uh, you can get that at marxist.ca slash So please go to marxist.ca slash subscribe and get your subscription to Fight Back magazine. Uh, Yeah, back into it. Hypocrisy. Uh, Yeah. um, Well, I could say a few words about this. I mean, they're banning Russian sports teams. They're banning the ballet. Uh, Vodka has been taken off the shelves. Dostoevsky
1: has been banned in some Italian universities.
0: I saw that. Uh, The vodka was not... It's, it's been taken off the shelves, but it's it, they they still have it. They're probably just gonna sell it later, actually. <laughs> they're just not selling it now. <laughs> Maybe change uh, the label. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I saw that Russian cats were banned from participating in cat yes. competitions. Yes. There's there are honest calls for the banning or or serious calls for kicking alexander ovechkin who's probably the best goal scorer that has ever existed out of the national hockey league because he supported putin in the past campaigned for him and he was a bit they tried to corner him and get him to denounce russia and putin and he basically just said i hope for peace i don't like war and stuff like that so there's calls for him to be expelled uh dominic hashek who is one of the best goaltenders ever, who isn't in the NHL anymore, has been calling for Russian players to be expelled from the NHL. I think there are many, many, many more examples of this. I guess the hypocrisy comes in here. I guess there's a couple of issues. It's like, one, what the hell does this accomplish? One, what what does any of this do to fight Russian imperialism? (laughs) A lot of this stuff, none of these people... Some of, the, some of the stuff doesn't, doesn't support the invasion. They don't support Russian imperialism. <laughs> uh, 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 so it's, it's, the, the connection there is tenuous at best. But then there's also the hypocritical element. Uh, you know, quite often the right wing uses the, not even the right wing, I think the liberals will use something like even the boycott divestment sanctions campaign against Israeli, Israel as an example of anti-Semitism. And we don't boycott. You can't boycott. You can't boycott goods or something uh, produced in Israel. Now, I, I, I. Even in this instance, I think we don't. We don't think that boycotting Israeli goods is the best way to oppose Israeli imperialism. Uh, however, the double standard is very clear. Right? Like it's extremely clear. It's like, oh, that was anti-Semitic, but now this is okay. Everything Russian is all of a sudden bad. Uh, so, uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia was to be honest, this Ukrainian this conflict in Ukraine seems like small change compared to what Saudi Arabia has done to in Yemen. Yet, where are the calls for boycotting Saudi Arabia for the oil, <laughs> God forbid, or anything else? Uh, the hypocrisy is just just stinks. I don't know if you have anything. Else to say yeah. about this.
1: No, I was thinking when, when you said this, I was thinking precisely about Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been conducting a, a, a murderous campaign of war in uh, in the Yemen. The first thing they did was to bomb the ports so, so no food could come in. And they've been bombing everything, you know, they've been bombing uh, weddings, uh, hospitals, schools. This is a really murderous campaign. And you don't get this in the news. In in the West, you, the, the, you get the passing uh, odd reference. You you don't get uh, journalists on the ground giving you the, the human interest stories uh, for, for twenty minutes and so on. Um, so it is this true for them? The, the suffering of the Ukrainian people is different from the suffering of the people in the Yemen. And the difference is not it's not the people. The the difference is is whose imperialist interests are, are at stake. When it's our own imperialist interest, then, then it's supposed to be this and that, a humanitarian war or something we don't talk about much, just in case. And uh, when, when it's the opposite sides, imperialism, then, then yeah, you raise a hue and cry. it. Like the other day, there was this, this um, resolution at the United Nations General Assembly, resolution against uh, Russia. And I don't know, 170 countries voted in favor against this war and so on. But uh, they, they forget very easily. And this was reported in all the news. What they, what they don't report in all the news is that the United Nations has been voting for 30 years. Every single year, they've been voting against the blockade, the US blockade of, of Cuba, which is a criminal uh, policy. And uh, last year, they got, and, and, and this vote has always been overwhelming. Last year, it was I think it was 194 countries voted against the blockade. Two countries voted uh, in favor, the United States and Israel, and two countries abstained, Ukraine and uh, Brazil. Uh, no, no surprise there. And sa- same with uh, the United Nations General Assembly voting against the oppression of the Palestinians. Or even another example, uh, Russia, for their own cynical reasons, has been, has been putting forward a motion for the last five or six years at the United Nations, a motion against, against the glorification of Nazism. Right, which is aimed at Ukraine, clearly, but uh, but the but the resolution is spot on. There's nothing you could disagree with from a democratic uh, point of view. Well, so uh, the United States and Ukraine have been consistently voting against, while uh, Europe has been consistently abstaining. Uh, this, at the end of the day, just tells you. Uh, and and one resolution has been broadcasted widely in the media; the other ones have been uh, si- silenced, and this just tells you about. Uh, how toothless the, the United Nations is. The United Nations Security Council is dominated by the big powers. They, they have a right to veto. They will never pass any resolutions about anything that is controversial. And uh, the United Nations General Assembly can pass any resolutions they want about anything they want, uh, and nothing will happen uh, so, so, uh, as long as United States imperialism is not uh, interested. If they can get the united nations to serve as a fig leaf for imperialist intervention as they did in the 1960s when they killed lumumba in congo or as they did in the first gulf gulf war in 91 1991 or as they did in the in the un uh, occupation of uh, haiti more recently uh, they they will do so if if not they will just uh, forget about the united nations and carry on uh, regardless, the coalition of the willing that uh, invaded uh, Iraq in two thousand and three. So for them, uh, all this talk about international law and diplomacy, this is all um, is is is, is, uh, is hypocritical. It's, it's just uh, it's completely d- double double standards. What applies to someone else's imperialism doesn't really apply to our own uh, uh, imperialism. That's that's the only the only rule. World, world relations are not based on any rules. They're based on might, on power, on economic, uh, and then backed up by military uh, power. And this is the only thing that uh, matters under uh, and capitalism. This is all done for, for markets, spheres of influence, raw materials, sources of energy. In this case, gas play, plays uh, an important role.
0: Yeah, I guess connected to this is the question of sanctions. Um Yes, a country like Canada is opposed to putting sanctions on Saudi Arabia or Israel because of economic, uh, political reasons, uh, uh, but is going all out on different forms of sanctions against Russia. Actually, in the first few days, I I found it funny. I was listening to the news and they, they put a few sanctions that were quite minor. And uh, the news, the journalist asked, or the host of the show asked, well, wait a minute, like, what are these going to accomplish? And they said, oh, no, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to accomplish anything. And they said, well, we're not going to, we're waiting because we want to be able to escalate. And yeah. the person asked, like, what do you mean escalate? They're invading the country. <laughs> like, there's no escalate. It's it's at that moment already. And so they have been and I think it's more for propaganda reasons, to be honest, rolling out saying more sanctions, you know, more things, you know, more boycotts, more sanctions of Russian products uh, uh, and whatnot. But yeah, I, I wanted to, I guess I want to ask like what, yeah, what, like I've been doubtful in my mind of, I've seen, I've just been seeing the Western propaganda. This is crippling the ruble and the Russian economy. Uh, how much is that having an effect? Uh, will that have an effect on the war uh, and yeah w- what will the I guess economic repercussions in Russia and even on the world economy I think we've already starting to see it uh, yes. but yeah maybe I don't know you could no sanctions that.
1: sanctions do do have an, an impact but uh, they're not going to change Putin's uh, conduct in in this uh, war not at all I mean the the, the United states have been been leveling Sanctions against Cuba for sixty years—they haven't achieved anything. They, they've had sanctions on Iran for I don't know how long, and they haven't achieved anything. Sanctions are a form of economic terrorism, if you if you want that uh, paid by by ordinary working people in Venezuela too. There's, there's US sanctions on Venezuela, and but these sanctions will have a negative impact, of course, on on the Russian uh, economy, and it'll be the, the Russian workers will pay for for this. Put, Putin already knew that uh, they were going to implement sanctions before he he invaded he'd already discounted that if if you want and uh, calculated for that built up uh, foreign reserves uh, and so on so yeah it will, will will have a detrimental effect on the russian economy but uh, but it will not uh, change the, the the course of the of the war sanctions are toothless in that uh, respect once biden said we're not going to send ground troops then there's, there's nothing nothing really that they can uh, That they can do. And also, these sanctions are a bit hypocritical in a sense. For instance, here in Britain, this country is full of uh, money from uh, Russian uh, oligarchs, capitalists, and uh, so on. They they have big mansions and properties, and and they are introducing sanctions on them. But these sanctions will take, uh, uh, going very slowly. They will take, I think, a month to come into effect, by which time, the Russian oligarchs would have already liquidated the companies, sold the properties, and uh, or put someone else in charge, so that they, they protected themselves. Because most of these uh, Russian capitalists are, in fact, um, funders uh, and contributors to the Tory Party in in the in the UK. So they're not they're not too keen in upsetting the the, the base the base of um, of support. So no Ooh, sanctions. Money sanctions money will has no.
0: Money has no nation, really. <laughs> no, has no
1: no color either. And the other thing is, the other thing is that, as you said, this will have a big impact on the on the world uh, economy. Well, what's the reason why Germany is not so keen on sanctions? Because because Germany depends on Russian gas. Sixty percent of the gas that, the, that it consumes is, is from from Russia. And, and overall in Europe, is forty percent. Oh, by the way, when when they were discussing sanctions, the Italians managed to get. A clause that said that uh, sanctions will not affect the sale of uh, high-end luxury handbags from Italy to Russia. So uh, everyone's looking for their own uh, interest. But yeah, this will have a big impact on the world economy. It's already had an impact on, on energy prices, which were already very high, and uh, it can have a knock-on effect. It can it can throw the economy into a tailspin. The economy, the world economy, is already in a very fragile state, and any external shock can uh, accelerate or trigger a new, a new recession. And it's, and it's working people who will pay in the West, in Russia, and, and above all, in, in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we're, we've been going on for a bit here, so I did want to maybe move things along. Um, I guess <laughs> coming out of this, you, know, you talked. we started talking about the position um, called internationalist class position, the main enemy is at home. Very important to emphasize this position at this moment, as the Western governments and media and capitalists are whipping up the the war fever to try to basically rally workers behind the bourgeoisie, behind the government. Uh, And they'll use that in the future, or they will attempt to anyway. But I guess a bit more concretely, maybe we can talk about like, what, 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 you know, because quite often, I think people get tripped up in the concreteness, like, what do we do? And so they end up concretely, the only thing to do is to support U.S. imperialism or Canadian imperialism and, and Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military, right? Uh, which I think is a no-go and not a good position, obviously. But what is, I guess maybe we could first start, but what is the role of the labor movement? What is the role that the labor movement has been playing? What is the, and, what is the, and what is the role that the left has been playing? Maybe we can start with that.
1: Yeah, every, every time there is a war, this question comes up. Like, like I remember very well at the time of the, of the bombing of Serbia, people were saying, yeah, but, but the, the Serbian government is committing a, a massacre, a genocide, something must be done. And someone in the meeting said, yeah, something must be done. But if you see a house on fire, you don't necessarily pour petrol on uh, the flames just because something must be must be done. So something must be done, but it needs to be useful. Now, the labor the labor movement... Obviously, divided in many shades of, of opinion and the, the officialdom in, in, the, in the labor and trade union movement, most of them have uh, capitulated to their own uh, ruling class. The, the leadership of the Communist Party in Russia has fully supported uh, Putin's uh, war aims, which are imperialist and reactionary. And the leadership of the social democracy in Europe has fully supported uh, NATO's uh, imperialist uh, ambitions. Uh, the Spanish government is run by social democrats. Uh, Kia Starmer here in, in the leadership of the Labour Party is tried to be more pro-NATO than, than, uh, than Boris Johnson. He even traveled to the NATO headquarters and is now expelling anyone in the Labour Party, any member of Parliament, any rank and file member who criticises NATO in this context can be expelled from the Labour Party. This is completely scandalous. And then you have the, the let's say the left wing of the of the Labour movement, further to the to the left. It's been divided uh, in different in different camps. Some people here in in the West have. Are basically capitulated to Western imperialism under the guise of, of uh, hands of Ukraine, defend poor little uh, Ukraine from Russian invasion. They're basically calling on the government for sanctions and sending arms to Ukraine and so on. Never mind the fact that many of these arms might end up in the hands of neo-Nazis in the, in the, in the National Guard. And this is completely a ridiculous position. And then others, I would say a minority, but as, as you mentioned, some, some others might, might try to find something progressive in Putin's uh, intervention in, in Ukraine. They say, yeah, there's Nazis in Ukraine and the Russian army will deal with that. And uh, they say, well, I mean, the main enemy is the U.S. imperialism. Therefore, we must support some somehow Russia is, is progressive. No, th- this is a reactionary war on both sides. And the idea that uh, Putin or Russia will be able to do anything about uh, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine uh, uh, in Ukraine is completely ridiculous. Really they might they might destroy them in this military operation, and we won't shed a tear for that. But they will create the political conditions for more people to to fall into the hands of far right Ukrainian nationalism. When 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 you have a big power next door invading your own uh, country, this is not a real uh, real solution, and it's very unfortunate. War puts all tendencies to the test, and I will say all tendencies. Social Democrats, the left reformists, uh, Stalinists, uh, they all failed the test. None of them, with very few exceptions, have taken a a consistent internationalist class-based position, i.e. based on the interests of the working class.
0: Yeah, we've seen that uh, as well in Canada. Uh, In January, uh, some of the NDP lefts like Nikki Ash and Matthew Green, they tried to they tried to sort of articulate somewhat of an uh, an okay position. I mean, they they came out saying, "Oh, there's not there's Nazi militias in Ukraine. That's bad. We can't be supporting this." Or you know, we're against Russia Russia because Russia was kind of saber rattling. You know, with Donbas, uh, you know, and just for mentioning this, they were like berated, <laughs> and they were silenced actually. And now they've been actually pushed into the opposite direction, where the position of the NDP, even the NDP left, is not really discernible from the government it's like even i shared a post the other day charlie angus who's considered a sort of on the left of the party he's like uh passed unanimously a resolution to name rename the street in front of the russian embassy uh, to zelensky street or something like that it's like well, I, this is this is the the labor yeah i'm sure i'm sure the labor leadership.
1: trembling in his boots that they no, change I, the name of the street
0: yeah exactly so yeah, I think you've summed it up well. It's been a uh, capitulation to the interests of the national bourgeoisie in each country by the labor leaders. Oh, and if I, may
1: say, if I may say, there's another brand of, of the left that they basically say, oh, we need to go back to diplomacy, we need to go back to the international uh, law, and we, which basically is a complete misunderstanding of how the world uh, works. There's no such thing as international law. It's, it's the interests of the big uh, powers. That's what you have to deal with.
0: Yeah, so that's sort of like a bit of a pacifist, negotiate, talk it out position. We saw this in actually to bring in an example of that. In Quebec Solidaire, the left party in Quebec, they because they want to appear as though they're succeeding at something, they put forward a really watered-down resolution about Ukrainian sovereignty and negotiated peace, which passed unanimously in the Quebec Assembly. Even the far even the right wing and the Liberals all voted for it. Even François Legault voted for it which allowed him to go, okay, totally agree with that, goes around, and Legault's a nationalist, he hates the Canadian government, he hates the Canadian state, he said, completely support the federal Canadian government as they impose sanctions on Russia. <laughs> but during the discussion, Andreas Fantasia, who's a Quebec solidaire uh, member of parliament, he made on this big speech about pacifism and how NATO is bad as well. And we got to be against imperialism. we got to demilitarize and negotiate, right? Which is like, yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's not not how the world works. It's not like you're going to just get these powers to sit down and talk it out and then agree to do away with their arms (laughs) Um, uh, at the same time as they're hypocritically putting forward this resolution that that everyone can agree to, because it means precisely nothing, and it actually it actually ends up supporting NATO <laughs> and imperialism, and allows it provides a left cover actually. Um, yeah, I mean, every, everyone is
1: in favor of peace and a negotiated solution, but the, the point is, uh, how do we how do you achieve that in practice? I mean, I mean, Putin is in favor of peace, and uh, and Zelensky is in favor of peace. The problem is that there are fundamental uh, interests that are contradictory. Oh,
0: precisely. Um, so yeah, what it. I guess then, uh, just we can end it off here. Going back to the position, like what what is the solution? What is the, what is the solution then to the conflict? Maybe we can just finish off on that, and then and also I keep connected to that. What should Marxists do? This is a Marxist podcast. If you're listening to this, you are probably interested in Marxism or a Marxist yourself. I guess the question then comes back to this: is a concrete this is a concrete question? Like what should Marxists do?
1: Yeah, well, the, the task of the Marxists is first of all to understand what are the real causes of this uh, war. What, what's what's brought this uh, situation uh, about? And it's not that Putin is mad; that the mental uh, health of, of the leader of Russia and doesn't enter into this. This is about imperialist interests, the imperialist interests of the of the Russian capitalists and the imperial, imperialist interests of the Western U.S. Uh, capitalists, which are which are heads over the question of uh, Ukraine, over the general question of of who controls these spheres of influence, not only in Eastern Europe, but also in the Caucasus, in uh, Central Asia, in the Middle East, in Syria, and and so on in Libya, where they are also fighting it out for, for, for oil. Uh, the, first we need to understand this. Otherwise you you, you end up with this position that uh, well it's only it's the conspiracy or, or the, the, the ruler of this country is mad and, and that doesn't explain anything. It doesn't allow you to fight against this, uh, this war. Second, the Marxists have different tasks in different countries. The task of the Marxist working class activist in Russia is to oppose their own government and, and their own the, the, the reactionary war of their own government. The task of the Marxist and working class activists in the West is to oppose our own uh, ruling class, uh, our only hypocritical imperialist ruling class, which is shedding crocodile tears over, over the people of Ukraine, while at the same time they help Saudi Arabia bomb uh, Yemen to the Stone Age. So, I mean, this is our main task. It can never be seen or be together with our own ruling class, not on foreign policy, and of course not on, on home uh, policy. This is, this is the same people who are cutting our wages, who are, who are destroying our pension rights, who are, who are destroying our trade union rights, destroying education, healthcare, and so on. We have nothing in common with our own uh, rulers, not on home policy, not on foreign uh, policy. Uh, and the task of uh, Ukrainian Marxists, and Ukrainian working class activists, which is very, a very difficult task, is, uh, is a task to, 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 to break through the fog of uh, national nationalist poison uh, and to understand that uh, Ukraine is being used as the playground for, for big powers and that the only way that they can uh, fight back against this is through working class uh, unity, the unity of the working class in Ukraine across the national and language uh, divide and the unity of the workers of Ukraine the workers in uh, Russia and the workers in the West, who have the same interest. The, the imperialists will not help Ukraine. The, the European Union has already said they don't want uh, to give membership to Ukraine for economic reasons. NATO has already said that uh, NATO membership for Ukraine is off the cards. No one's going to help the Ukrainian uh, people in the face of this imperialist uh, aggression. The only way they have is, is to, to put the whole thing on a completely different basis. Uh, same as in uh, Russia, the workers must take power and overthrow these capitalist gangs in every single country. Because this, I will say, is, that, is, the, is the crux of the whole matter. Uh, capitalism brings war. Capitalism brings uh, hunger and suffering, and capitalism in, in a period of crisis, in mean, the epoch of imperialism, brings imperialist uh, wars in which Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of innocent people will, uh, will die. And therefore, at the end of the day, if you want peace, if you are against uh, imperialist war, you need to ask yourself, what is the cause, the final cause of this uh, suffering? The final cause is the existence of the capitalist system, the profit-driven system uh, based on, on, on the private profits of a small, unelected, unaccountable minority. And there's no reason for this system to exist. It's a a rotten system that needs to be uh, brushed aside, swept aside from from the face of the earth. And this is our task. In order to do that, we need to build a strong Marxist uh, organization, participate in the workers' uh, movement, in the movement of the youth, that's looking for a revolutionary alternative and uh, put an end once and for all to this to this system. This is the only way, the only practical way of putting an end to imperialist uh, war, be, be that in uh, Ukraine or in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, or, or in Yemen, or anywhere else.
0: Cool, well, yeah, thank thank you very much. The the task is uh, not to support one imperialist gang or the other or the lesser evil of them <laughs> but do because because that is not going to advance the cause uh, of socialism or the cause the anti-war cause <laughs> in any way shape or form uh, it will just create more wars and more conflicts down the road uh, so yeah the task of socialists, the task of Marxists is precisely as you said to, to fight for a so internationalist working class, you know, workers of the world unite, as Marx said, a socialist perspective, uh, and to fight against our own bourgeoisie wherever we are. And for that, you need an international, you need a, a organization that unites people across the, na- the national divide, uh, the, the divides of the, that are all, all over the world in different countries. And, 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 and that's precisely what we're doing at the International Marxist Tendency. Uh, of which Fight Back and La Riposte socialists are a part of. So, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, joining us this week to explain the Marxist approach on this question, which, uh, yeah, it has a lot of ins and outs, and I think there's a lot of confusion. So I think we helped to clarify things this this week. Uh, and I just want to say, uh, again, if anyone listening, you like this podcast, you want to get involved in the fight for socialism, uh, yeah, you have to join us, join the International Marxist Tendency, join Fight Back here in Canada, Um Yeah, to fight for socialism uh, in our lifetime. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca, and we will be doing this podcast every week, so we hope that you tune in again.